baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We need, and we haven't done this yet, to centralize our public health system. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. We have done exactly what needed to be done, which is provide and give an effective vaccine. The key for gun safety reform advocates is to think about this in the long term. These times when change happen, often brief, so you want to get as much accomplished as possible. This is KCBS In-Depth. It's been a harrowing week for the Bay Area's Afghan community, as images of the chaotic evacuation effort in Kabul have surfaced, leaving many here to wonder how long their friends and loved ones will remain safe. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi, and today on the program, we'll be hearing how local aid groups and average residents are rallying support to help those attempting to flee Taliban rule very impressed with the love of just humanity in our community, in particular in the Bay Area. And then in the second half, we'll also hear why the upheaval in Afghanistan is posing a major challenge to Silicon Valley tech companies. The question is, you know, Taliban 2.0, like, are they going to be the same kind of leaders in the region? And if so, should the social media platforms be enabling that? First up, though, a look at how local groups are trying to offer aid and support to Afghan refugees in the wake of the government's collapse. For that look, we'll be hearing now from Aisha Wahab. She's a member of the Hayward City Council and an Afghan-American who serves on the board of one of the local aid groups coordinating support. Aisha Wahab, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thank you. To illustrate some of the things that we're going to be talking about today, I actually wanted to start out this conversation by bringing in the voice of one of the many members of the Bay Area's Afghan community who's been working this past week to help family members back in Afghanistan. I actually came here to see if I could find any kind of uh, information or resources to get my aunt and her son and my cousin to see if we can get them to come into the U.S. KCBS caught up with this woman who declined to give her name at the Afghan Coalition office. It's a nonprofit advocacy group in Fremont that's offering assistance to those fleeing Afghanistan. The woman says that her aunt and her family have reason to fear the Taliban as they were tortured by members of the militant group years ago the last time it was in power. You know, she's just uh, frantic, and, and we're trying to do whatever we can to, to help her from our side, but it just seems like every door I try to knock on, I get a dead end. Meantime, she says her cousin's past work for the United States is also putting the family in danger. She's like, if they find out I worked for the U.S. military, not only will they kill me, my husband, and my two-year-old. So she's locked in her home, not knowing what to do. How she's feeling during this moment of uncertainty? Honestly? Yeah. Scared. I have one aunt left that can barely walk, has a deaf son. You know, a daughter that supported the U.S. And yet, 
Nobody's there to help them. All I want is just for them to get out. So, Aisha Wahab, uh, a really heartrending story that we're hearing right there, but I, I imagine not uncommon uh, among the uh, many difficult experiences that many in the Bay Area's Afghan community are experiencing right now. What are you hearing uh, from those in the Bay Area? Uh, similar stories. Um, I think a lot of Afghans are very, very nervous and, and anxious in particular to support their family members, loved ones, friends. Um, we are hearing reports every single day. People are sending us videos, um, recording themselves and sending it and explaining their process. Uh, I just had an individual from Afghanistan who actually does has, have his visa application and he has been sponsored by a media company. Uh, he is known as Afghanistan's Bruce Lee. And um, I believe he was trying to work on a film. He in particular showed um, sent me a lot of information as well as showed a video. Um, they are hiding in their homes, lights off, windows covered, and they are in fear as to what is going to happen if they will be targeted, so forth. Now, as an American, you know, we can still in the morning wake up and go to get coffee and go to work and go to school and so forth. Um, but a lot of Afghan Americans that are living here and abroad are very, very anxious. They cannot sleep. They cannot eat. They are constantly thinking um, there should be a more streamlined effort to support uh, the community in a humanitarian crisis that we, we are currently seeing. And we should mention that the Bay Area is home to a very significant Afghan community, especially in Fremont with its uh, little cobble neighborhood. Uh, tell us, how is that translating into communal support? Are, are there more resources to draw on here because of that population? Uh, yes. Um, you know, Afghans have, you know, especially the ones that are the new arrivals um, post 9-11 have been coming to the United States. Um, they are landing in different parts in, let's say, middle America and so forth. But even if they land in middle America, they want to go to a place that is considered an Afghan hub. That is the Washington, D.C. area, Virginia, um, New York City, the Bay Area, throughout the Bay Area, which is the largest um, home to the Afghan diaspora outside of Afghanistan, um, and um, very specifically wanting to connect with people that can speak their language, have Afghan food, and, and so much more. Speaking with uh, Aisha Wahab, she is once again an Afghan-American and a member of the Hayward City Council. So you mentioned a second ago the fear and uncertainty that uh, many family members are experiencing right now, but you also get a sense of profound frustration that more is not happening more quickly. This is something that uh, America knew was coming for quite some time, obviously not the, the, the pace of the takeover that occurred, but uh, there, there were certainly more steps that could have been taken. Why is it at this moment taking so long to get uh, Afghans uh, out of the country uh, and uh, also Americans out of Afghanistan? You know, we've all seen those very chaotic images uh, at the Kabul airport. Uh, what is your understanding of some of the barriers that people are running into? The honest truth is that to say that we had a lack of intelligence is completely, I'm going to say point blank, pathetic. Um, you know, we are the one of the strongest nations in the world. We knew exactly what was going to happen. We have had the most expensive and long lasting war in Afghanistan uh, for 20 years, and we did not have a clear exit strategy. We all understand as Americans that, you know, at a, at a point in time, we are going to have to leave how are we going to leave? We, we saw this coming day by day. The encroachment and the territory grabbing was very obvious city by city 
almost overnight. And we did know that this was going to happen. Um, I really question what happened there. Why was the intelligence community not able to provide this information? Did they provide this information? And I will say President Biden has a lot of questions to answer um, to the American public, specifically as to why did it come out this way? Right. Um, we can make mistakes. We all know that, you know, these things have a lot of moving parts. But what is the truth? What happened? What is the timeline? Where did we fail? Where can we pivot and be a success? Um, the Afghan people, as well as Americans, have been currently stuck in Afghanistan. The, the fact that the airport in Kabul has three levels of security, three different checkpoints. Um, there are Taliban securing that checkpoint. There are regular everyday Afghans and, you know, the police and so forth covering th those checkpoints, as well as Americans, as well as others. Um, it is incredibly difficult. You see the images of people just giving their babies. Please take my child to have a better life. Um, this is a disaster in a lot of ways. Um, and it's, it's growing and unfolding. And we have not really controlled the situation. And it's a disaster that even seems to include many people who believed that they would have support and a way out at this point, people that worked for the U.S. military or the U.S. government in uh, another capacity. And uh, what is it that people are being told uh, when they get to the airport or when they try to find their way out? I mean, is it is it just a matter of people can't talk to the right person or the 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 whole process is taking too long or there's there's paperwork that's needed. I mean, what what is it that is gumming this process up and making it slower than uh, I think so many people expected? It's all of it. Um, you know, from the Af Afghan side, it's, you know, they're supposed to go to the embassy. Well, the embassy is not really doing anything because they have to worry about, you know, their own individuals moving out. Um, people are also scared to walk around with IDs and information and paperwork to prove who they are um, because they don't want to be pulled over by the Taliban or some individual that may either steal it or harm them for even having it. Um, you have from the United States side, just as as a, as a member of, of the Afghan coalition and working on this more in depth, um, I will say that it's not clear to even the agencies what are happening, what are the best steps. Um, we do have great Afghan-American immigration attorneys that can speak both Pashto and Dari, um, and they're really, really trying to help. They are working nonstop, 24-7. This is throughout the nation. Um, and I will say our American veterans are really stepping up to help the the allies that they had on the ground in Afghanistan. And they are extremely frustrated themselves. Several American veterans have come to me at different events, uh, emailing me saying, these are the reports I'm getting. Um, they're not letting anybody in. They won't allow film footage to, to really show what is happening. Um, and people are privately taking videotape through their cell phones and sending it over. But to the danger of, you know, their life is at risk when they're doing that, to just be transparent as to what's really going down. Um, so I think from all sides, there's extreme frustration. And the immigration process, we all know it's not clear cut. You know, how do you apply? What is the specific visa? You know, um, some people are saying, you know, people are going to eventually start lying about their status and stating that, you know, I'm in harm because I worked for the government. There is no proof because they're burning their paperwork. Um, and I want to make it very clear to the American public that 
specifically, the Taliban took over all these government buildings. They have the paperwork of who worked with who. It is very much in their hands. That is the clear danger that people don't seem to realize that information is at their fingertips right now. Yeah, a very uh, dangerous and uh, terrifying situation for so many people. Uh, Once again, we are speaking with Aisha Wahab, who is an Afghan-American and a member of the Hayward City Council. She is also on the board of the Afghan Coalition, which we mentioned a little bit earlier in the program, has been assisting folks get out of uh, Afghanistan. And there's a number of other organizations as well in the Bay Area carrying out similar work at the moment. We could highlight the uh, International Rescue Committee in Oakland, as well as the Jewish Family and Community Services, also in the East Bay. Uh, Tell us a little bit more, if you could, what that kind of help looks like. I spoke speaking to you a little bit before we turn the microphones on, uh, getting the sense that it's just been a flurry of activity this week with uh, meetings and and community uh, groups coming together to try to find solutions here. What are folks in the Bay Area trying to do for those who are still trapped in Afghanistan? You know, honestly, I genuinely am very impressed with the community here on the ground in the United States, Americans, veterans, you know, Afghan Americans, and uh, just different organizations. There has already been an influx of volunteerism saying, whatever you need, translation, documentation, money, we are here for the people. Um, Synagogues have reached out, uh, churches have reached out. I'm very impressed with the love of just humanity in in our community, in particular uh, in the Bay Area. Um, I will say the city of Hayward in particular, um, just as a council member and speaking to our staff and our city manager, we have gone above and beyond. If you go to hayward-ca.gov backslash Afghan relief, um, we are actually coordinating a lot of the different community groups that are trying to provide services. Now, it's not just the paperwork with with. Um, our State Department has to be the one that you file your visa with or any of those documentations. Um, We have other departments that are trying to expedite um, some of these that have already taken place, but it's a step-by-step process and everyone has a part to play and everyone has a different, slight different jurisdiction. Now, with that said, um, once the Afghans arrive here, the next step is What are they going to need? And I want to be very clear that the translators, um, they're just one group of people that need to to come here, right? And they speak English, right? That's why they were translators. Um, But their wives and their children do not. As well as many others, let's say the Afghan activists, the journalists, the artists, those that have historically been targeted by the Taliban do not necessarily speak English. Housing, transportation, infrastructure, education, they all cost something in the United States. It's difficult for us as Americans to kind of get by it'll be even more difficult for them to get by. Um, And the Bay Area has a high cost of living. um, So we are definitely trying to work around that. I'm very proud to say that the president of Chabot College, she has reached out to me, um, Hayward Unified School District. We already have Afghans post 9-11, these new arrivals. We know their needs. Um, We just need to ensure that the funding and the wraparound services are strong um, and very coordinated, um, just so people don't feel like they're falling through the cracks or there's too much, you know, red tape, if you will. A stark perspective right there. That once again was Aisha Wahab, an Afghan-American and a member of the Hayward City Council. Aisha Wahab, thank you so much. Thank you.
for listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, we're taking a look at how Bay Area residents are responding to the growing crisis in Afghanistan. Up next, we're going to change focus and discuss why this crisis also poses a major challenge to Silicon Valley tech companies. It's a challenge that's been brewing over the past several years as Taliban supporters have become increasingly savvy users of social media platforms, turning to the likes of Twitter, Facebook and YouTube to get their message out to a global audience. These tech giants have pledged to combat terrorist groups on their platforms, but now that the Taliban has seized control of the reins of government, the companies are facing a range of thorny new issues. To help us sort it all out, we're going to turn now to Emily Birnbaum, who's been tracking the story as a tech lobbying and influence reporter for Politico. Emily Birnbaum, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thanks so much for having me. So catch any of our listeners up who uh, have not been following this topic. It, it may seem like uh, the Taliban and uh, social media companies wouldn't go together in uh, most people's minds. But uh, in reality, they've been holding a pretty sophisticated social media presence over uh, the last couple of years. So uh, help us understand, how has the Taliban been using social media companies to uh, project its messages? Yeah, over the last couple of years, experts who track the Taliban's social media presence say it has become, uh, it has gotten a lot more sophisticated. So they even suspect that they might be working with some PR firms internationally uh, on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Um, Even though they're technically banned from Facebook and YouTube, they um, have been able to evade some of those bans and um, get out essentially pro-Taliban propaganda. So they're especially trying to ingratiate themselves with uh, likely a Western audience, you know, present themselves as um, altruistic, as helping the people of Afghanistan. Um, and that sort of set up the groundwork for their takeover uh, over the past month. And so this poses a difficult challenge for Silicon Valley tech companies because they have made pledges to try to stop terrorists from using their platforms. And uh, here we have the Taliban um, uh, using it in a number of uh, different ways. How are these tech companies responding so far now that the Taliban has solidified its control over Afghanistan? Yeah, so uh, Facebook has banned the Taliban for many years. YouTube has as well. Uh, Twitter has a different policy. Twitter actually allows um, accounts associated with the Taliban. For instance, the Taliban spokesman um, is on the platform with hundreds of thousands of followers. Um, And each is taking their own tact. So Facebook has set up an emergency team internally um, to monitor the situation on the ground. Um, uh, YouTube has as well. And essentially all of these companies are sort of in limbo as they wait for the international community to um, decide whether uh, they are going to recognize the Taliban as the official government of Afghanistan. So for right now, they're sort of scrambling to take down accounts associated with the Taliban, um, supporting or glorifying their leadership. Uh, but that's an awkward position as you know it becomes clear that they have solidified control. Right. And it seems like one of the big questions is whether or not to allow the Taliban to take over uh, the Afghan government's official social media handles. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, the companies have made it clear that they don't want to be the arbiter of that question. They don't uh, think that they should be in charge of, uh, you know, endowing uh, legitimacy when the U.S., when the international community, when, uh, you know, countries around the world haven't made their own decisions. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a pretty stark juxtaposition, uh, the way that you put it just a moment ago, because we have on the one hand... Uh, world leaders grappling with the question of whether or not to recognize the Taliban as uh, the legitimate leaders of Afghanistan. And here we have, on the other hand, tech companies trying to decide whether or not they they will be the legitimate holders of these social media handles. And um, it's just kind uh, kind of a reminder that that is actually a very impactful question and and really a, a lot of power that these tech companies hold. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like even their decision to ban these groups itself was somewhat controversial. Like uh, the Afghanistan Taliban is not technically a U.S. foreign terrorist organization, Uh, but, you know, the U.S. Treasury has imposed sanctions on it. So that has allowed some of the platforms to decide to boot the Taliban, you know, from their networks. But like, but there's no real one standard. You know, there's a standard setting body um, called uh, the GIFT CT that is supposed to help coordinate uh, the approach to terrorist content across uh, social media companies. But the GIFT CT has basically decided to sit this one out. You know, they say each company has to be making their own decisions on this topic right now. All right, real quick, I want to remind listeners that we're speaking with Emily Birnbaum. She's a tech lobbying and influence reporter for Politico. This is KCBS In-Depth taking a closer look at how Silicon Valley is coming to terms with the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan. And this is not the first time that these social media companies have had to confront this issue. They've There are obviously other militant groups around the world that use these uh, platforms to propagate their message. And there's also been uh, tragedies that have been helped to progress. So this is not necessarily um, a new issue. Uh, how, how are those past issues perhaps going to inform the way that uh, tech companies confront this, this current challenge? Right. I think a good analog is how the companies have dealt with Hamas and Hezbollah. So, you know, for instance, Hamas, designated a terrorist organization by the U.S., but also the legitimate and democratically elected government over the West Bank. And, you know, Hezbollah, also part of the government in Lebanon. And both of them, for instance, have been allowed to operate accounts uh, across some of these social media companies. So on Twitter, um, there was actually a whole controversy a couple of years ago over Twitter allowing Hamas and Hezbollah accounts to remain on their platform. Um, And they came out, they said, you know, we have a very nuanced policy towards this. We allow groups that are engaged in peace negotiations. We allow groups that have been democratically elected. Uh, They faced a lot of pressure from a group of bipartisan lawmakers and ultimately took down some um, Hamas and Hezbollah affiliated accounts, but it was sort of a, a one-off and not necessarily a policy change. Um, Hamas and Hezbollah are banned on Facebook and YouTube. Uh, so these these are really nuanced questions, but it's actually not, it's, it's not as though they've never dealt with this before. Um, and, you know, there is a lot of disagreement within the human rights community about whether it's the right thing to do to boot 
democratically elected governments or to boot, uh, you know, official governments off the platform. But, you know, we know, uh, for instance, with the Taliban, they have a history of uh, enormous discrimination of women, uh, of extreme violence. Um, and so the, the question is, you know, Taliban 2.0, like, are they going to be the same kind of uh, leaders in the region? And if so, uh, so the social media platforms be enabling that and spreading their message. And then, of course, there's the other question that many have raised of if the Taliban and the images that are propagated related to the Taliban are taken down, you could also get in that dragnet important images that are documenting some of the human rights abuses that are taking place in Afghanistan. And that could actually uh, shut down the voices of some human rights workers themselves. Exactly. Uh, They say that it could just amount to unhelpful censorship. So, for instance, the Taliban had opened up a WhatsApp hotline for people to report instances of violence in recent weeks and the and Facebook shut it down, uh, which aggravated human rights workers on the ground who said, you know, at a certain point, this kind of thing isn't helpful because we actually, you know, this is one of the best ways that we can gain insight into what's happening on the ground. Um, And on the other hand, right now, uh, a lot of people in Afghanistan are scrubbing their social media profiles entirely out of fear of uh, retaliation for, you know, potentially working with the U.S. or, you know, for whatever they have done over the last, you know, two decades. So Facebook today advised that people in Afghanistan who are afraid of retribution should maybe turn on some of their privacy settings. And they have pulled a lever that basically makes it impossible to look at the friends lists of a lot of the people on the ground in Afghanistan, because I think there's been some speculation that people associated with the Taliban have been looking through the friends list of, you know, suspected U.S. collaborators and, you know, using that to gain more information and putting people in danger. Yeah. And and finally, interestingly, this issue also brings into the spotlight domestic uh, political issues in America, because obviously uh, Donald Trump, former president, was banned from Twitter not too long ago. And uh, if Twitter is still allowing uh, posts from the Taliban on uh, its network, uh, some are questioning if there's uh, a double standard going on there. Uh, how, how do you see the political dimension of this all playing out? Yeah, I mean, you can imagine if you're a Republican, that's a very easy argument to make. You know, ex uh, Republican figure who I support, including, of course, Donald Trump, uh, is not allowed on. So should he just join the Taliban and maybe they'll let him back on? Or at least that's, you know, the line that I've seen from a lot of these conservative lawmakers and commentators. Um, Republicans for a long time have promoted the idea that their voice, that their voices are. Uh, routinely censored by the social media platforms. Um, Of course, there's not a lot of evidence to back that up, Um, but they're going to continue to hear that. Um, I was listening to an expert the other day who was saying, you know, it's just kind of interesting because the Taliban actually, at least over the last couple of years, has avoided making uh, explicit incitements to violence online, has avoided um, weighing into territory that would get them uh, banned for policy violations on these platforms, whereas Donald Trump consistently towed that line. So I think that's what the companies themselves would say. 
All right, a, re- a lot of really thorny questions to be sorted out in the coming months. Uh, we have been speaking once again to Emily Birnbaum. She is a tech lobbying and influence reporter for Politico. Emily Birnbaum, thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.